It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 827 for the 14th of April, 2023. This week, so many people complain about Windows, but then don't take the time to figure out how to fix what's bothering them. It's usually not difficult. So let's consider some of the annoyances that can be fixed with minimal effort. In short circuits, if you have a computer that's running slow and you've already replaced the mechanical hard drive with a solid state drive, adding memory might help. A common bit of humor has old people who need tech support calling on their six-year-old grandchildren for help. But it doesn't have to be that way. Some recent research says that we older folks are dealing with technology a bit better, and the pandemic is part of the reason why. And 20 years ago, only on the website, by 2003, manufacturers had managed to create cameras that were good enough to start the massive migration from film to digital. Do you like the way the Windows 11 start menu works? What about quick settings? It's likely that some things you'd like to see there are missing, and other things you never use are present. It's an easy fix. I read and hear a lot of complaints about the way Microsoft has chosen to do things, and what surprises me is that many of the irritations people complain about are easily changed. I'll describe a couple of things that I've done to make the computer work the way I want it to, but a quick Google or DuckDuckGo search will probably describe a fix that I won't mention here to fix a feature that annoys you. If you're wondering why Microsoft doesn't make Windows work exactly the way you think it should, consider this. Does everything work exactly the way you think it should when you buy a car, move into a new house or apartment, or replace an old appliance with a new one? There's probably something that you want to change with that new car, the house, the apartment, or the appliance. Do you blame the manufacturer for getting things wrong, or do you make changes? I'm assuming you make changes. So why should the computer be any different? The computer arrives with settings designed for the average user, but the average user doesn't exist. The BBC program QI once described how an organization designed a piece of wearable equipment for the average employee. The suit designed for the average employee fit nobody well, and so it is with the average window settings. Apple has improved a bit over time. Instead of telling users they don't really want to know how the magic works and they shouldn't try to tinker with it, today's Macs actually have a limited number of modifications users can make. Depending on the distro used, Linux users can personalize every bit of the operating system, utilities, and applications. This does require an in-depth knowledge of how things work, and market statistics show that this hasn't exactly turned out to be popular with the masses. So that leaves Windows. It comes with settings for the mythical average user, and limited instructions for how to change things. Microsoft has gotten better over time, too, and does provide some clear instructions for making changes if the person who wants to make changes asks the question exactly the right way. But because Windows is used by so many people, there's no shortage of instructions for changing just about everything. 
Let's take a look at three of the most common areas of complaint and confusion. Apps that start with Windows, the Start menu, and Quick Settings. I don't remember when Quick Settings was introduced and I couldn't find a definitive answer. The feature might have been present in Windows 8, maybe it was added in 8.1. It is definitely present in Windows 10 and actually works pretty well in Windows 11. I reinstalled Windows 11 in March because the system was exhibiting some strange behavior. The underlying problems included non-Microsoft applications. Because I use the primary computer for testing and evaluation, a lot of software comes and goes. But there was some possibility that there were some hardware issues involved. That remains undetermined at this point. In any event, reinstalling the operating system and reinstalling applications instead of restoring them from backup seemed to be the best option. This meant that I got to see the computer with an operating system and interface designed for the average user. Depending on the computer manufacturer and the computer model, applications that you don't want may start with the computer, and some programs that you install may schedule themselves to start with Windows without requesting permission. A new option in Settings makes this an easy fix. Every application that starts with Windows will be listed there. To keep an application from starting, find it in the list and flip the toggle switch to Off. Either Microsoft or Lenovo thought that Microsoft Teams should run at startup. I do not use Microsoft Teams, so I turned that off. Lenovo includes Glance by Metrics. That turned out to be an application that I might find useful if I didn't already have applications that do what it does. So I turned that one off too. Now, this is a useful function because it can set applications that start with Windows, but it can't specify when an application starts. A better option is to use the free startup delayer from R2 Studios. In addition to specifying which applications will start with Windows, it controls when applications can start. By default, startup delayer sets a blend about halfway between fast and smooth, and that works for most people but the user can disable or delete applications that they don't want to start with Windows. Being able to choose when an application starts is helpful too when a program is slow to start and delays other applications. If there's an application like that on your computer, Startup Delayer can set it to automatically start based on CPU or disk activity, or it can be delayed a specific number of seconds or minutes. The Start menu has been a mess for a while, starting with the disaster that was Windows 8. Tiles could be different sizes, sometimes they seemed to move around on their own, they'd come and go. That nonsense was discarded in Windows 10. Windows 11 is even better, or maybe less bad, because there are still improvements, a lot of improvements, to be made. By default, the Start menu has three rows of applications that include items I may not want. For example, Xbox and Solitaire. Three rows of recommendations that I definitely don't want. And only the Power button is shown at the bottom. Well, I want those recommendations to go away. I just, I never use them. I want more rows of applications, and I'd really like to have more options at the bottom. To fix that problem, I start by right-clicking a blank area in the Start menu and then clicking Start Settings. From there, select the More Pins option instead of the default option. This adds one more row of icons to the menu. 
I turned off show recently added apps, show most used apps, and show recently opened items in Start, Jump Lists, and File Explorer. In my estimation, that should allow at least one more row of app icons, but it doesn't. Maybe that's coming later. Clicking the Folders selector adds the finishing touches to the Start menu. I'd prefer to have settings on the taskbar, but the taskbar is now limited to a single row of icons. On the Folders panel, I can turn on icons for Settings, for the File Explorer, and Network. These appear adjacent to the Power button. The next step involves modifying the icons in the Start menu's upper section. Icons on the Start menu can be moved around, and dragging one icon on top of another creates a folder. Then it's possible to drag additional icons into the folder and arrange them in the order that the user prefers. For example, a folder could contain the most frequently used Adobe applications. And the Start menu itself gains additional panels when one is full. When I finished, the Start menu had just a single panel with individual icons for a few applications such as StreamWriter, Beeper, and Timeslips. The other icons were all in groups of icons for Microsoft, Adobe, Affinity, video players, browsers, utilities, and more. I still have the applications I use most frequently on the taskbar. These include programs like 1Password, Cuter, Thunderbird, Vivaldi, OneNote, UltraEdit Studio, Lightroom Classic and Photoshop, Word and Excel, and a few other applications. And the final section down at the bottom of the screen that might need some modification is Quick Settings. It lives at the right side of the taskbar, immediately left of the clock. Clicking that area on the taskbar opens Quick Settings, and clicking the pencil icon opens Edit Mode. My primary computer has a battery, but it's connected to AC power all the time, so I don't really need the battery setting. I click the pin icon to remove it. There's one icon I'd like to add, and there's an option for that. Even though the computer is connected via an Ethernet cable, it seemed like a good idea to activate the Wi-Fi icon in case I ever needed to use it without a wire. The Quick Settings area also provides quick access to the Full Settings function. So, if there's something that annoys you about how Windows works, see what DuckDuckGo or Google can show you to help find a solution. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. Short circuits long ago, but still in this galaxy, the accepted way to make a slow computer faster involved adding RAM. Then the best option involved replacing a mechanical disk drive with a solid state drive. Now that many computers have solid state drives, we seem to be back to adding RAM. That happened to me recently. The computer wasn't really slow. After all, it has an Intel i9 processor, a solid-state boot drive, fast hard drives for data, and what I thought was enough memory. 
Although the computer had 32 gigabytes of RAM, there were still times when some operations were sluggish. A large part of the problem was obviously the web browser, Vivaldi. It would have been the same if I'd used any other Chrome browser, or Firefox for that matter. Sometimes I have a lot of sites open simultaneously, and sometimes a site has a lot of graphics. For example, one site with several hundred typefaces, each represented by a single image to show what it looked like. Vivaldi was using more than 2.3 gigabytes of RAM in a system with 16 gigabytes. A dozen or so other applications and 184 background processes consumed nearly 60% of the system's memory. Adding RAM seemed like a good way to boost performance. So I added another 32 gigabytes of RAM using two 16 gigabyte modules. Desktop computers make the process easy because the primary component in the case is air. Gaining access to the memory slots is easy. The process is more complicated in notebook systems, and that's what I was dealing with. Two memory slots were on the bottom of the computer, but both of those were filled, and the other two slots were on the top of the computer, underneath the keyboard. To get there, I had to loosen the screw that holds an access panel in place on the back, open the panel on the bottom of the computer, loosen two screws, turn the computer back over, open the screen, unplug two ribbon cables, remove the keyboard, remove three tiny screws, slide an access plate about one centimeter, and then remove the plate. Ah, and there they were, two memory slots. Once I got there, installing the RAM modules was easy. And then I had to reverse the process, replace the metal plate, slide it into place, insert and tighten three tiny screws, taking care not to drop them into the computer, reattach two ribbon cables, slide the keyboard back into place, close the cover, turn the computer over, tighten two screws, replace the access panel, and tighten its screw. After reconnecting the power and network cables, plugging in a USB cable and an HDMI cable, and plugging in two Thunderbolt 4 cables, I turned the computer back on. When a computer boots after certain hardware changes, the process can take a very long time. In this case, about five minutes. Long enough for me to begin to think that maybe something had gone wrong, even though I had carefully checked my work at every step. Well, the computer did boot properly, eventually. The first stop after rebooting was Settings System About, where I found the computer now had 64 gigabytes of RAM. Better still, the activities that had been sluggish when the computer had 32 gigabytes of RAM were no longer sluggish. If you check the illustrations on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I really have to tell you this to be truthful. You'll notice that one of the images labeled Before shows 48 gigabytes of RAM, not 32. That's because I had first decided to add only 16 gigabytes, which increased the memory to 48 gigabytes. That was adequate, but it seemed reasonable to use the one remaining slot to take the memory up to 64 gigabytes. And yes, that means I performed the actions described to gain access to the memory slots under the keyboard twice. Well, the effort was worth it. My point today is that many bits of computer maintenance are well within the capabilities of most people. The Crucial website offers a system analysis function that reveals how much RAM is in the computer and which slots are open. 
With the memory modules in hand, I needed only the instructions for adding RAM from the computer's manual. Lenovo provides well-written instructions, and after reading the instructions, I printed copies of some of the illustrations so that I wouldn't get lost along the way. Anybody who can read and follow instructions should be able to add RAM, swap the computer's boot drive, and master many other basic maintenance tasks. Computer maintenance is a lot like working on any other expensive small device. Read the instructions, then read them again. If you don't have printed instructions of your own, make some. Refer to the instructions while you're working and never force anything. Where do you think you'd find the most tech-savvy old people? The question not asked here is why you might want to do that. And I think there's a third question that should be asked. We'll get to that in a minute. According to the Seniorly Resource Center, the most tech-savvy oldsters are likely to be in the District of Columbia, California, and Utah. The report says the least tech-savvy seniors are found in North Dakota, Mississippi, and at the bottom of the list, West Virginia. Why would you want to find the most tech-savvy seniors? Well, maybe you wouldn't. I probably wouldn't either, but I did find the report interesting because I am squarely in the target group, and Ohio is in the 36th place, near the top of the bottom third. Hey, we're at the top of the bottom third. Well, before looking any further, note that statewide rankings probably are silly and not really worth thinking about. West Virginia doubtless has some seniors who know far more about high-tech than some seniors in D.C., as is the case with so many things, the outcomes probably are more a factor of socioeconomic factors than location in any specific state. In other words, those areas where incomes are higher are probably more likely to have a higher percentage of aging geeks. That's the question that should have been asked, even though I didn't phrase it as a question just then. The report says that the pandemic pushed some older people into positions where they began to see tech in a positive light, but many still lack confidence or aren't quite sure how to use the devices they own. The information actually came from an AARP survey. Nationally, 15% of seniors lack access to technology at home, and other barriers exist. The Seniorly Research Center says that these range from a lack of knowledge and cost to not understanding the benefits and the inability to deal with installations. Spending on devices is, as you may already expect, higher in states with a more tech-savvy senior population. Those in D.C. spend the most, around $700 a year. Utah is second at $603. Both Texas and Nevada come in right around $500. That compares to West Virginia's average of $83, Vermont's $113, and Maine's $162. The digital divide is real. The report says that although seniors are increasingly using technology, they're not fully on board across the country. The full report, if you'd like to read it, is on the Seniorly Resource Center website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. No matter how tech-savvy you are, you probably use a digital camera instead of a device that needs film. That migration was gaining speed in 2003, and that's the topic in 20 years ago, this week on the TechBiter Worldwide website. 
Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>